Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Now, realizing that she's being deprived of the opportunity to bear children and to continue her family line, Tamar takes matters into her own hands. Now remember, inheritances and everything else flow through family lines, so this is a big deal. But she decides to take it in her own hands, and what she does, if you know the account, she dresses herself up as a harlot, as a prostitute. And she sits herself in the city gate where she knows that her father-in-law, Judah, passes by regularly. And one day as he passes by, he sees her, although he doesn't know that this is Tamar because her face is covered, which was the custom of the harlots. But he stops and he propositions her. But since he doesn't have enough money to give her for her services, he offers her his staff and bracelet as payment for her services, which she accepts. And so Judah ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, but not realizing who she was. Now, later, however, rumor gets around to Judah that his daughter-in-law Tamar has been playing the harlot, and he's righteously furious. In fact, he goes so far as demanding that she be stoned, which was the custom. And by the way, doesn't that sure smack of the New Testament account of the woman that's brought to Jesus by these self-righteous Jews and want her stoned because of the stuff she's engaged in. And Jesus turns the table and looks at them and says, well, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, we don't know what sin he's referring to in sin in general or whether these guys have been up to no good just like her (laughs) and using her. But it just seemed to smack of that kind of idea. So here's, you know, Judah, just like the self-righteous Jews of Jesus' day, just all upset about this. And and he just wants her stoned. But just before he stones her, Tamar holds out the items which he had given to her after sleeping with her and asks, hey, do you know who these belong to? Busted. Busted. And after seeing all this, Judah realizes what's happened. And he backs off. Now, while there's a lot of spiritual applications to this account, what I really want you to see in this is just the seediness of this account and this woman, Tamar. Now, it was clearly wrong for Judah to have done what he did in regard to how he slept with her and most certainly in regard to holding back his son to, to, you know, out of fear when he should have been given by law to her to promulgate the line. But but it was also wrong for Tamar to take matters into her own hands in that manner that she did. Her response to this wrong inflicted upon her was excessive, it was unjustified, and it was absolutely immoral. And yet Matthew includes this woman in Jesus's lineage. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, then there's Rahab. Now, Rahab was a bona fide harlot. She was a prostitute, a woman of ill repute by trade. She didn't just do this for a sake of a, a, a situation. This was what she did for a living. And, and, and yet God uses her to save the spies that Joshua sends in to scope out Jericho. You know this, the account, right? 
For her actions of protecting those spies, she and her family were shown mercy by the Israelites when Jericho fell, and she obviously became a part of the Israelite community, and she ends up in the lineage, in the, in the biological line of Jesus, right here in Matthew's account. Interesting. And there's Ruth. Ruth. Now, Ruth is probably the most normal woman in the group, but she wasn't a Jew. She was a Moabitess, which didn't fit the narrative of a Jew, you see. And then finally, there's Bathsheba. She, you know, it's interesting in Matthew's account, she isn't even referred to by her actual name, but Matthew simply refers to her as the woman who was the wife of Uriah. She's the woman who David entered into an adulterous relationship with, and she suddenly, subsequently becomes pregnant, and David then had to find a way to cover up his sin, and, 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 and his plan ends up in the murder of her husband Uriah. You know the account. At least I hope you do. But here's the point. Not only did Matthew break from tradition and include women in his account, but he includes women who, based on who they were, had to be shocking to any good Jew of that day. Now, I realize that our focus is not Matthew's account, but I did want to take that moment to point out to you to these differences in this regard to help you see something that I think is really cool in, in, in what the Holy Spirit was signaling through Matthew's account. Because through the insertion of these four women, I firmly believe the Holy Spirit was signaling a difference between man's attitude and God's attitude towards people. He was demonstrating through the simple and yet out-of-place insertion of these four names how the family of Jesus encompasses everyone and that no one is excluded from his plan of redemption should they choose to place their faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter what your status or your reputation is in life. It doesn't matter what country you're from or what neighborhood you lived in or what side of the tracks you grew up in. Jesus is willing to receive you into his family line to bring you into the family of God if you'll place your faith in him. And as Paul tells us, as Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29, Galatians 3, 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. You know, even when it comes to the sinfulness of your life and the sinful things that you have done in this life, when you repent and place saving belief in Jesus Christ, none of that matters anymore. Who you were, what you did in the past, it no longer matters anymore. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't matter to the world. I'm not saying that if you were a murderer that and you're serving prison time, that suddenly that prison sentence gets wiped out. I hope none of you are. But if you placed your faith in Christ in prison, having done that, it doesn't mean the consequences of your actions will not play out. But what your promise has been made to you is clear in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse Verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh-oh. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh-oh. If we stopped right there, there'd be a problem, Houston. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you, 
but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God receives and he brings into his family those from whom the respectable, orthodox, religious person would shrink away from in horror. But if you placed your faith in Christ, who you were no longer matters because he receives you and he makes you into what you were always meant to be. It doesn't mean you can go freely sin anymore. No. Why would you want to? But he offers you away from your sin. But it isn't based on your skin color. It isn't based on your race. It isn't based on your past history. It's not based on any of that. It's based in your faith in Christ alone. I hope you understand that because it's really, really good news. The gospel literally means good news, and it truly is everyone is welcome in God's family, not just the good person or the saintly person or just those with the right pedigrees of life. But Jesus Christ invites everyone to be a part of his lineage, women, harlots, adulterers, saints, sinners alike. All men and women are welcome to be part of his family's heritage. He'll receive anyone regardless of who they are or what they've done or how sinful their life might be or how presently caught up in sin they might be. Anyone who recognizes his or her need for Jesus in dealing with their sin and who are willing to repent and come by faith to him, he will receive them. That's the promise of the gospel, including them, including you in his family lineage, and empowering you for transformative change that makes you worthy of being a part of his family, not your worthiness, his worthiness. And by the way, ladies, I hope you do realize that Jesus Christ is the greatest liberator of women who has ever been. Do you know that Jesus Christ has done and he continues to do more for you than anyone who ever championed the cause of women? So don't pay attention to what this world would tell you. It's not true. Christianity does not put you down, but Christ elevates you as you come to him by faith. Well, secondly, let's note here also how Luke and Matthew differ on each, uh, the reach of their genealogical accounts. They're different in the way they their reach goes. You know, Matthew only traces Jesus's lineage back to Abraham, 41 generations, but Luke traces Jesus' lineage back 76 generations to Adam. Now, by beginning with Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, Matthew's genealogy was meant to show the relationship of Jesus to all Jews as being their Messiah. And that coincides with the overarching theme and the purpose of Matthew writing his gospel to prove to the Jews that Jesus was their Messiah. And so he takes them back to the Jewish patriarch, to Abraham, and that's all the further he feels the need to go. Because that's the one that they revere. That's the one they look back to for their identity. And as they look at that, he wanted to make the connection of Jesus being the fulfillment for them as their Messiah, as the Jewish Messiah. But on the other hand, Luke does something completely different. Luke, his purpose for writing the gospel is to give a precise record of Jesus' life as the perfect human Savior. 
And so therefore, Luke's genealogy traces all the way back to Adam to make the connection of Jesus' relationship to all of mankind as the Savior of the world. Really, he's fulfilling what and, and pointing to what Paul later writes of in the New Testament as Jesus being the second Adam. He wants us to see that. So he takes us all the way back. Third, I want you to note that Luke's account is also different from Matthew's in the order in which it's laid out. Matthew begins with Abraham, and he progresses forward in time to Jesus, whereas Luke begins with Jesus, and he progresses backwards through history, ending with Adam. And that's because the Holy Spirit was using Luke's account, presenting this regression to greater magnify the focus and attention on Jesus. He begins with Jesus. He doesn't just end with Jesus, although both accounts combined certainly make Jesus the beginning and the end, don't they? And fourth, Luke's account differs from Matthew's in regard to the many of the patriotical names that they include. You know, in verse 31 through 38 of Luke's account, they're the same. If you compare them, you'll find that they're the same as Matthew's account. This is because Mary and Joseph were both descendants of David. But Luke's account from verse 23 through 31 differs significantly from Matthew's. Matthew's, Matthew follows the line through David's son Solomon to Coniah, or in some translations, Jeconiah, while Luke follows the line of Nathan, which was another son of David. And this is important, because it has to do with a cursed line versus an uncursed line. See, Jeconiah also called Keniah in Jeremiah 22 and verse 4, and in some translations referred to as Joachim, in, in, in those translations, he was a king of Judah who was deported as a part of the Babylonian captivity, and he was so wicked that God levies a curse upon him as recorded in Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. Now remember, this is coming from the line of David as well. But listen what he says here in Jeremiah 22, verse beginning in verse 24 through verse 30. As I live, says the Lord, through Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I'll cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? Now listen. O earth, earth, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Because of God's curse... Jeconiah and his male descendants were barred from and apparently never inherited the throne of Judah in any way, never sitting on the throne of David. And that's why God told Jeremiah, write this man down as childless or record this man as childless. It's not that Jeconiah had no children. In fact, First Chronicles 3, 17 through 18, which is also supported by archaeological evidence in, in, that was discovered in, in ancient, what it would have been ancient Babylon, it shows that Jeconiah had sons and he had descendants, but none of them ever sat on the throne of David. But rather, it's because the descendants of Jeconiah were being disqualified 
they were being disqualified from ever inheriting the throne. God is simply saying it's as if Jeconiah had no sons in a royal or legal sense. But that presents a problem. Since Matthew's record here takes us back through Jeconiah, talking about Jesus' lineage. Back through Jeconiah. It's a cursed line. How, how then can Jesus be the legal heir to the throne of David? Because remember, the Messiah is the greater David. He is the greater king to come. He's the one who will sit on David's throne. How can Jesus be the legal heir to the throne of David if Jeconiah's line was cursed? Ah, this is where Luke's account comes to play. You see, unlike Matthew, Luke doesn't follow Jesus' line through Jeconiah, but he follows it through David's other son, Nathan. But how does that resolve the issue? It resolves it because many believe that Luke's account is actually an account not of Joseph's lineage, but of Mary's. And Mary's line traces back to David as well through David's son, Nathan. Well, how does that work? Since nowhere in the genealogical record, Pastor Randy, does Luke even mention Mary? And everything is, appears to be connected to Joseph. Yep, it does appear to be connected to Joseph. But the answer to that question is found in verse 23. Because in verse 23, we are told that Joseph was the son of Heli. But the problem is that Matthew's account tells us that Joseph was the son of Jacob. So is Heli just another name for Jacob in the way that Keniah is just another name for Jeconiah? No, it's not. There's no evidence of that. So then we have to ask, who is Heli? Well, according to reliable Jewish records, Heli is Mary's father. So then why does Luke say that Heli is Joseph's father? Is that a biblical error? Is it a scribal error? No, it's neither. You see, in the Hebrew term that Luke uses for son of, it can mean son of, or it can also mean son-in-law of, which is the most logical application here in this genealogy, that it's referring to Joseph as the son-in-law of Heli, not as the son of, as you and I would interpret that. Which means that unlike Matthew, who gives us Jesus' legal genealogical line through his adopted father Joseph, Luke actually establishes his biological lineage through Mary. Now, that means that if you trace the royal line, ignoring the curse of the Old Testament, you would have to conclude that Jesus had a right to the throne, not just legally through Joseph's line, but he had a right to it biologically through Mary. And by giving us this account, Luke is bypassing the curse and the problem of that curse that comes from Joseph's line. But whether legally or biologically, both genealogies lead to Jesus' Nazareth as the only person in all of history who could possibly fulfill both lines and rightfully claim the throne that Scripture says the Messiah will claim. He's the King of Israel. He's the one that rightfully can sit on David's throne. Now, one other important thing worth noting, Mary's line also has connections to the priesthood. To the priesthood. The narrative in the beginning of Luke's gospel provides some information about Mary's family background because you might remember that Mary's relative, Elizabeth, is married to the Levitical priest Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. 
And he was serving on his rotation when the angel appears to him, tell him about his son, John, that would be born. And, and, and he was performing those duties. And Elizabeth herself is identified as a daughter of Aaron in Luke chapter one and verse five, just as much as her husband is. And so this couple is a total package in regard to being a Levitical family. Now, Mary's relationship to Elizabeth is specified by the angel Gabriel in the announcement he proclaimed to Mary. Luke chapter 1 and verse 36. Luke chapter 1 and verse 36. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. Now that word there that he uses, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, that word, your relative, in the Greek implies strongly one who is of the same kin, related by blood, or in a wider sense of the same race. It's a compound word with a preposition implying some kind of sharing and a, a root implying race or, or blood relationship. The, the common usage of the time included descendants of a common ancestor, relatives in the same family or members of the same family or race of people. And so Mary isn't just some distant cousin like a 20th cousin. She, she's, she just isn't related to her by, by marriage to Elizabeth, but she is a blood relative, a close blood relative to Elizabeth. And as such, she is a member of the same family with the same ancestry. And that ancestry leads back to Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. Now, why is that important? Because it means that Jesus not only has royal blood in his veins that gives him the right to the throne as the king, he also has priestly blood flowing in him as well, which is the promised Messiah. He must have both. The scriptures portrayed him as having both. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 17 and 18. Jeremiah 33, 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice annually. Jeremiah, amongst many prophets, makes clear the dual nature of the Messiah. He will be both king and he will be both priest. Eternally, forever, the term is used. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. He is both in his first coming. He has come to fulfill the role of the great high priest, and he has the blood flowing in him that gives him the right to be that. He's the, he, he came in his first coming as our great high priest, just as Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 declare. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a whole different topic. <laughs> we won't go there. But by the way, you'll note that that passage is directly taken from the Old Testament passage that declared that priestly role of Messiah, because in Psalm 110, verse 4, where this is taken from, Psalm 110, verse 4 declares, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, speaking of what the Messiah would be and who Jesus is. And so Jesus, in his first coming, this was his primary role. This is why the Jews get confused, because they're looking for the king, but he came as a priest. He came to, to, to offer that sacrifice of himself and yet to be that great high priest who could make that sacrifice on our behalf. And he offered that for us. And we, we find salvation because of this priestly role that Jesus plays for us. But in his second coming, 
When he returns, he will come to take his place as sovereign king. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is not already a king. He is. But yet he's not fully taken his place as king in this world. And he will in that day. And we know that because Revelation chapter 19 told us that when we studied the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us. (laughs) Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it, He should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has, now listen, and he has, listen, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is truly both. And even his bloodline declares his right to be both priest and eternal king. Both. And it's established right here in these genealogies. Whoever said the study of genealogies in the Bible is boring? Just need to dig into them a little bit, folks. It's amazing what's given to us. And remember, all of Scripture is given to us. All of it is given to us. Every dot, every tittle, every period, every comma has been given to us for our growth edification in Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.